Welcome to the New to Jesus podcast, where we find foundational truths to help you take your first steps in your walk with Christ. Hey, welcome back to the New to Jesus podcast. This is Dan Bergman. And in this episode, we're going to look at John chapter 8. Now, to recap some things that were going on near the end of chapter 7, there was a division between the Jewish people who believed in or at least tolerated Jesus and those who did not. Nicodemus, that guy from John chapter 3, he stands up and defends Jesus. And the unbelieving Pharisees dismiss Jesus as hailing from Galilee, meaning no prophet comes from Galilee. That's what they said. And then we ended chapter 7 with everyone going into their own house. Jesus, by contrast, went into the Mount of Olives, which we read in verse 1 of John 8. It says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Jesus was constantly going away into a solitary place where he could commune with his Father. And I think that you and I, we certainly need to do the same thing. I mean, Jesus was the Son of God, God in a human body, 100% God and 100% man, and yet he still needed in his humanity to pray and have communion with his Heavenly Father. Now, in verses 3 through 11, we come upon an account of a woman who was taken in adultery. It says in verse 3, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? So this was something that she was caught in, sexual immorality. And the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to trip up Jesus, to try and stump him, to try and trick him into saying something that they can later go back and use as fodder to attack him with. And they mentioned that Moses commanded in the law that such that do such things should be stoned, meaning killed by stones being thrown at them until they are dead. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22 verse 22 says, If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. Adultery was a serious thing. And by the way, the reason that the law was given, the law of Moses, which Leviticus and Deuteronomy were both written by Moses, the reason that the law was given was to show the nation of Israel that they could not possibly measure up to God's standard. The New Testament talks about the law being our schoolmaster or our teacher to bring us to Christ. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they want to trick Jesus up in his response. If he says, don't stone her, he would be condemned as one who rejected the law of Moses. 
If he says, go ahead and stone her, he would be condemned for attempting to usurp the authority of the Romans, for they had the power of life and death. They had the jurisdiction and the authority in Israel in those days. The Jewish religious authority, the Sanhedrin, would have never brought such a case before Jesus, as in their eyes he had no authority to deliver a verdict and a sentence on such a case. The only reason for this situation was to attempt to destroy Jesus' reputation and credibility in one way or another. Verse 6, This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Now when it says that they were tempting him, that Greek word that's translated as tempting means to submit one to a test, to trap, or to attempt to catch in a mistake, to test for the purpose of making one sin. So what's Jesus' response? He bends down, and with his finger, he begins to write on the ground. Writing on the ground was probably not sand, but stone, as is expected in the temple complex. Remember, they were in the temple. It was not like sandy beaches. There's probably nothing specific or special about what was written, as it was on stone. But interestingly enough, Jesus is probably writing something, tracing his finger on the stone, not giving them the attention that they desire, the scribes and the Pharisees. He knows their motives. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. So the crowd continued to press the matter upon Jesus. We should remember that numerous times the Judean religious leadership attempted to condemn Jesus regarding his upholding or breaking of the law. This is incredible. Jesus never says that she isn't guilty or not to stone her. Here's some commentary from a commentary set called Barnes Notes, speaking about how this stoning would take place. In the punishment by death, one of the witnesses threw the culprit from the scaffold, meaning the person that was guilty would be thrown from a scaffold or a cliff by one of the witnesses that saw it happen. And the other witness would throw the first stone or roll down a stone to crush the person. We can see this in Deuteronomy 17, verses 6 and 7. This was in order that the witness might feel his responsibility in giving evidence as he was also to be the executioner. Jesus therefore put them to the test. Without pronouncing on her case, he directed them, if any of them were innocent, to perform the office of executioner. This was said evidently well knowing their guilt and well knowing that no one would dare to do it. It's also interesting to note that the adulterous male is not here. How did they catch this woman, quote-unquote, in the act? Also, it seems a definite possibility that the sexual sin is what is implied by Jesus' words, without sin. 
Jesus is God. He knows our hearts and he knew theirs. He knew the truth of the things that they had engaged in. It's quite possible that this was set up as a trap for the purpose of trying to ensnare Jesus. Verse 8, and again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Here, each of the accusers is shown the wickedness of their own hearts by Jesus himself. Eldest to the last is probably not a reference to age, but rather rank and position. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows the things that we do, the sins that we engage in. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you should be honest with him and come clean. Confess the things that you've done and ask for forgiveness. If you do know Jesus as your Savior, you're not going to lose your salvation by having sin in your life, but you will lose the peace of God, the fellowship with God, the communion with God, God's blessing, and answered prayers until you confess that thing and make it right with him. So it says in verse 10, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The Bible says in John 3:17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the whole purpose of his coming to earth is not to condemn everybody. We're already condemned. He came to save us. Jesus does not ignore her sin. He rather kindly rebukes her for it. He does not put himself in the position of her judge, jury, and executioner. Now, in verses 12 through 30, we see that Jesus is the true light. Verse 12 says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Did you know that in the center of the temple court were four golden menorahs? Kind of like what you would see on Hanukkah but gigantic. These were built on bases that were 50 cubits high. Gigantic menorahs. And this was for the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles and that celebration, which would have been going on at this time. Each had four branches, terminating in huge cups into which oil was poured. The wicks were made from the worn garments of the priests. Throughout the night, the cups were kept full and the lights of those menorah were so intense that it's said to have illuminated all of Jerusalem. It's in this context of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In verse 13, we see the Pharisees respond. They say, therefore unto him, thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true, for I know whence I came and whither I go. I know where I came from and where I will go, but ye cannot tell whence I come or whither I go. We must remember that Jesus' authority 
is one of the central themes of John's gospel. Jesus has authority. Why does he have authority? Because he's God. Verse 15, ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. I want to read you a passage from the pulpit commentary on this verse. Various commentators named Storr, Moulton, and Godet suggest that the phrase, I by myself, I alone, independently of the Father, judge no man. Another commentator named Meyer maintains that the Lord is claiming the lofty position of Savior rather than judge. He came with that as his primary aim, purpose, and intent to heal, not to wound, to save, not to destroy, to give time for repentance, not to hurry sinners to their own doom, to illumine, not to cover with darkness. It does not rest on my mere human consciousness, on what you who judge after the flesh might suppose it would rest, they're saying that Jesus is getting at, but on the eternal decisions of him who gave me my commission. The Father is in me and with me. I think the Father's thoughts and do the Father's will. Christ's testimony concerning himself his implicit judgments on human nature, his indirect condemnation of the whole crowd by his gracious refusal to condemn the sinful woman to immediate doom, all issue forth with the sign manual of Almighty God, with whom and in whom he dwells as the only begotten Son. John 5, 30 through 38 gives us some additional teaching along this same line, which we previously talked about in our episode on John 5. Verse 30 of John 5, Jesus says, I can on my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, meaning John the Baptist, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye may be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him ye believe not. So Jesus is trying to describe to them his relationship with the Father and why he has this authority. Verse 19, they said unto him, Where is thy Father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my Father. If ye had known me, you should have known my Father also. This comment by the Pharisees is almost assuredly in relation to false accusations that Jesus was an illegitimate child of a human father. Jesus' response, you don't know me. You don't know my Father either. Now Jesus described to them 
that the one whom he called his father was the one that they worshipped as God. And so Jesus is telling here that you don't know the God whom you claim to worship because you don't know me. Verse 20, these words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Remember, the idea of his hour has to do with his death on the cross. The fact that Jesus was speaking in or near the treasury shows that he knew the hearts and minds of the religious leadership who hated him primarily because he was a threat to their power, position, and wealth. Jesus says in verse 21, Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Here, as he will in the second half of this chapter, Jesus focuses once again like a laser on the heart of the issue, which is sin. Jesus was telling them that you're going to die in your sin, and you're not going to be able to go where I am going. Verse 22, then said the Jews, speaking of the Judean religious leadership, will he kill himself because he hath said, whether I go, you cannot come? And he said unto them, ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, and I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, speaking of the Messiah, ye shall die in your sins. To give you some context about how it would have been understood where Jesus says that you are from below and I am from above. I don't know if you've ever heard of the phrase making Aliyah. It's when somebody migrates to Israel. And the word Aliyah means ascent, means to go up. Whenever anyone goes to Jerusalem, even if it's from the north, they are always going up to Jerusalem. This is due to two factors. Topographically, Jerusalem is on a hill. It's higher elevation than all of the surrounding areas. It's also looked at as being higher spiritually because it's where God put his name. It's the location of the temple. It's in the center of the Jewish world and the seat of Jewish religious authority. By contrast, Jesus hailed from a place called Galilee, a place where the second-class peasants and fishermen dwelt with a mixed crowd of unclean goyim, or non-Jews. Standing in the highest esteemed area of the temple complex, the treasury, in the highest spiritual location, the temple, speaking to the highest up on the spiritual ladder, the Judean religious authorities, Jesus, a Galilean, tells them that they are below and that he is from above. Don't miss the context of this statement. He then drives it farther by telling them that he is not from this world as they are, and that if they don't believe that he is the Messiah, they will die in their sins. Verse 25, Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, 
And I speak to the world those things which I've heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. This is the first honest question we hear from the religious leaders. Jesus' answer, however, has mixed reception. We will find shortly that many believe, quote-unquote. This belief is not saving faith, though. As we will see, it's not a reception of him as their Savior, but it's a superficial, temporary acceptance of what Jesus has told them so far. Then Jesus said unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. The lifting up of the Son of Man is parallel to the gospel presentation given by Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. There were many after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection who believed on him as Messiah. The phrase, ye shall know, is pointing out to them, not that they will necessarily accept him, but the proof will be there, and the evidence sufficient and complete. And Jesus only always pleases his Father. Is this true? Of us? Verse 30, as he spake these words, many believed on him. Now, as mentioned previously, those who quote unquote believed were professors, not possessors. What I mean by that is they are professing faith in Christ, they are claiming that they believe, but they are not possessing true saving faith. They are not receiving and possessing Jesus as their Savior. They're simply having a superficial, okay, yeah, I believe. You know, there's people like that today. There's tons of people that say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. But they are not true believers. They're just simply taking that label as a superficial acknowledgement of Jesus, not a saving faith. In a few short verses, this same crowd will be calling Jesus demon-possessed. Verse 30 simply shows us their willingness to listen to Jesus' words up to this point. It is their denial of their own sinfulness and need for a Savior that is the problem. Verse 31 says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Now remember, this claim to belief in this passage is not a saving faith. It's just a willingness to listen. It's more of like a tolerating Jesus, agreeing with with what he said up until this point. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. These verses show that the Jewish people in this passage were not truly saved. They had not yet come to saving faith. Jesus tells them that they must continue to hear and believe what he is about to tell them. And if they do this, they shall, future, they shall be made free. Listen to their response in verse 33. 
They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? They're saying, Jesus, we're not slaves. <laughs> we're Abraham's seed. Why are you saying that we need to be made free? This is a common sentiment among many Jewish people today. I don't know if you know this, but I have a Jewish background on my dad's side. And my wife and I, we spent the previous 10 years in ministry sharing the gospel with Jewish people, trying to show them that the New Testament is a Jewish book and that Jesus and the gospels and everything that we read in the New Testament is embedded with a Jewish context. But sadly, among many Jewish people today, there is not an understanding that they need to be set free, that they need to be forgiven for their sins. Now, they are God's chosen people. They are physically children of Abraham. But because of this, oftentimes there's this thinking that, well, we don't need to be saved. You know, some Christians believe this as well, or people that claim to be Christians, rather that we have our own way to God and the Jewish people have a different or separate way. This is a false teaching called dual covenant theology. Also, was their statement of never being in bondage even accurate? I seem to remember a couple of different situations where Jewish people, the nation of Israel was enslaved. We read all about this in the book of Exodus. Their claim that they don't need to be made free is simple pride. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Wow. What do all people need to be made free from? What are they enslaved to? Jesus' answer, sin. Jesus always seems to bring the discussion back to the topic of sin. This is the heart of the matter. This is what the Messiah's coming was all about. We read about this in Isaiah 53 and Daniel chapter 9, that the Messiah would be cut off, that he was bruised for our iniquities, and that his death would not be for anything that he had done. You see, sin is the problem, and Jesus is the answer. He says in verse 35, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. This is an interesting passage. Jesus is telling those Jewish people that although they were chosen to be servants of God, they are not free. They are by their own nature, just as non-Jews, servants of God to sin rather than the Lord. The servant or slave is not an irrevocable permanent position. It's temporary and it's limited. Jesus as the only begotten Son of God has power to set us free from our slavery to sin and to give us power to become the sons of God, as it says in John 1.12. Jesus then says, I know that ye are Abraham's seed. But you seek to kill me, 
because my word hath no place in you. This is astonishing. Jesus knows their hearts. Listen to this. At that very moment, the people that Jesus was talking to, at that very second, they wanted to kill him. Didn't we read just a couple verses previously that they were believing, that they were believing in what he was saying? They were. They were going along with what he was saying. They were tolerating him up until that point. They were agreeing with what he said. But then when he begins to talk about how they need to be made free from their sin, everything changes. They change from having just this kind of cordial tolerance and agreement and understanding to turning on Jesus. He knows this is occurring in their hearts. His word is being rejected. He is offending them by what he's saying, and they are getting upset. It's pride. Now, Jesus is going to strike to their hearts as he smashes their pride. He says, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. Verse 44 will tell us whom Jesus is referring to when he says, your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth. Which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. They are Abraham's physical descendants, yes, but in heart and spirit, they don't take after Abraham. Abraham is known as the father of faith. He had faith in what God had told him, not seeking to kill those that would tell him the truth from God. Verse 41, ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. The universal fatherhood of God is a concept that's taught by many in this world. And it's shown in this chapter to be false. Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. So there's this idea going around that we're all God's children, right? The universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. And hey, we're all, we're all God's children. Now in the aspect of we are all created by God, yes. But spiritually, we don't follow after God. This world, those that have rejected Jesus, they are not the sons of God. Again, Jesus says, to reiterate, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. 
Remember that one of the central themes of John is that of Jesus' authority. Jesus is showing these Jewish people that although their words make the claim that they came from God, their actions and thoughts show otherwise. Their rejection of Jesus shows that they are not the children of God. It's impossible to separate Jesus, the individual, from the fact that he was sent from God the Father. Now, this passage is not being anti-Semitic. The things that Jesus is saying is not something to be a blanket statement for all Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. Nicodemus, whom he talked to in John chapter 3, was Jewish. John the Baptist was Jewish. Jesus is specifically here in this passage indicting the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus says in verse 43, Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Verse 47, a little bit later, will show us the importance behind this statement. They hear, but they don't listen. Isaiah 30, verse 9, speaks of children that will not hear the law of the Lord. Isaiah 6, 7 through 10, says, I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I send me. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. God is not telling Isaiah to make it so these people cannot be saved. But he's saying, Isaiah, by preaching my truth, these people will shut their ears. By giving them my truth, they will close their eyes. By speaking to them the things that I tell you to speak to them, they are going to respond in disobedience. Here, the Hebrew concept of obedience is hinted at. In Hebrew, Shema B'Kol literally means to hear in the voice. This phrase is a Hebrew idiom meaning to obey. Whenever you see the word obey in the Old Testament, it's this Hebrew phrase, Shema B'Kol, to hear in the voice. What Jesus is stressing is their lack of obedience to his teaching. Abraham's faith was shown through his obedience, leaving the land of Ur, binding Isaac, and many other things that he did. Jesus says in verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. All of those, Jewish or non-Jewish, all who have not trusted in the God of Israel through Jesus the Messiah, 
are children of disobedience, children of wrath, and have as our father the devil. This can be seen in Ephesians chapter 2. You see, this is not an anti-Semitic statement geared towards Jewish people, but rather a truth about all of the unsaved. That is a glaring contrast in this passage. When did Satan murder in the beginning? Well, I can think of three people. Adam, Eve, and Abel. Satan might not have directly killed Adam and Eve, but it's through his deception that Adam would one day breathe his last breath. The same goes for Eve. And Abel, in Genesis 4, was murdered by his own brother. All of this ties back to Satan and his influence. Jesus says in verse 45, And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. See, people only want to believe truth that sounds good to them. But the truth that Jesus was giving was convicting and condemning. They didn't want to hear it. Jesus continues, Which of you convinceth me of sin? Or which of you can can show that I have sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? No one can lay any charge of sin upon Jesus. He's totally without sin. Jesus continues, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. This is an amazing passage. Look back up at verse 43. Jesus is actually claiming to be God. He says in verse 43, Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Verse 47, He that is of God heareth God's words. You therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. Jesus is absolutely claiming to be God. And this is not the only time that he does this in the book of John. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? They are convicted of their sin and they're angry. Saying that Jesus was a Samaritan was completely unfounded. That's like using some kind of derogatory false claim to try and make somebody look bad. Then they call Jesus demon-possessed, that he has a devil. Verse 49, Jesus answers, I have not a devil, but I honor my Father, and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. The judgment of God committed to Jesus is mentioned in John 5, 6, 7, and 8. It's a major issue that goes right along with the subject of Jesus' authority. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. What is death? Well, back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, in verse 15, it says, See, I have set before thee this day life and good, and death and evil. This is equating good with life and evil with death. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that thou in thy seed may live. Having life biblically is not just simply having a pulse, that your heart is beating, you have breath in your lungs. It's so much more than that. Life biblically is good and blessing. It's the fullness of blessing associated with God's presence. I want to share with you some verses about life. John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3.15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not just being alive forever. It's having the fullness of blessing associated with the presence of God, and that for all eternity. Verse 52, Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. You see, the unbelieving Jewish people that Jesus is talking to in this passage do not know God. He is not their God. They do not know Jesus, God in human flesh. And if we don't know Jesus, Jewish or non-Jewish alike, those that don't know Jesus don't know God. Because Jesus is God in a human body. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they stones up to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Jesus had other plans for his death. His hour was not yet come. Why did the Jewish people here immediately pick up stones to cast at Jesus? Because they fully understood what he was saying. 
he was claiming to be God. Thank you so much for joining me as we have gone through this chapter. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode when we look at John chapter 9. Thank you so much for listening to the New to Jesus podcast. You can go to our website, newtojesus.com. That's new, the number two, jesus.com. If you'd like to find me on social media, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at danielbergman99. And if you'd like to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, that helps us to get in front of more people to help them take their first steps as new believers in Jesus. Jesus.